Well, welcome to Wilshire today. We are glad to have you here. It has been a very busy week at Wilshire for several of our members and for our church here. Some of you have had to attend funerals of family members. Some of you have graduated. If you didn't know, Regina got her master's degree and uh, Carrie Terrell got her master's degree and Tori got her bachelor's degree and I'm sure I've missed somebody, but congratulations to you guys. That's no small task. And yesterday was a wonderful day here at Wilshire. We had, it's always exciting when we do a ministry and have some sort of outreach event. It's exciting to me to see how many of our members are involved and engaged in that. And if nobody showed up, just getting to hang around the building and work together is fun. But we had what Bill told me was about 200 uh, different sacks that we gave out to the community and fed lunch to several people. We gave a lot of coats away. Um, I told Bill I was going to round that up to 400 for preacher's count, but I think it was around 200 people we were able to be a blessing to yesterday. And thank you for everyone who took a part of that, um, especially for Lacey and Andrew and Mary and all the work that they did up here through the week, weeks building up to that. We appreciate all of that. And I hope that you'll be back this evening at 5 o'clock. We're going to um, have a time of worship and then... Um, our plan is to provide a blessing to the uh, residents across the street. We've been collecting some blankets and things to take over there to Grace Living Center. And so I hope you'll uh, be with us this evening to be part of that. So if you're visiting Wilshire, you're here at a very busy time, but we're, uh, we're glad to have you part of us. This is a great church. Lots of things are happening, and we invite you to share some fellowship and Bible study after uh, the sermon this morning. Well, last week we started a trip through the Bible. Jim has started us in a logical place in the beginning. And so last Sunday, Jim walked us through the different uh, images that you find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This, this opening act, if you will, of the story of Scripture is the act of God creating. And the story as it's found in Genesis is, is so much different than the story that, than the competing stories of the time that Moses or the writers of Genesis wrote this information, and, and the Spirit leads them to tell a story of God and creation that looks far different than the other ones around them. And so we saw last week how Jim showed us that God is different. He creates, he has no competition. And you and I even have a role in this story. We're created in the image of God, and we are called to be his image bearers. Now to those of us who've heard this story before, we know what happens next. But there are some sections of a movie or of a book that if you miss that section, nothing after that makes any sense at all. You ever gone to a movie and you get up to go buy popcorn or go to the bathroom at the wrong moment and when you come back in, nothing makes sense? It's like I was gone for five minutes and everything is different now. Or someone leans over to talk to you at the wrong time, and you miss everything. If you don't know that Charlie is an angel and that George Bailey was committing suicide or wanting to, if you miss that part of the movie, none of the rest of it makes sense. Right? Or who else was shocked to find out that Luke Skywalker is actually... I didn't watch the movie. I hadn't seen any of them. <laughs> But I scared some of you to death, didn't I? 
There are moments in movies and moments in stories that if you miss them, nothing else makes sense. And I think Genesis 3 is one of those moments in Scripture. If you take Genesis 3 out, or if you walk away from this story for just one chapter, and you enter the story again in chapter 4, you will be thoroughly and utterly confused. Because in Genesis 1, we ended with this wonderful cadence. It is good. Seven times. It is good. It is good. And only after God has created man and woman, God says it is very good. In Genesis chapter 2, we see a picture of an intimate God working as a farmer, like he's working with soil. He works as a surgeon, opening up Adam. God and Adam are walking in the garden. They're talking together. Genesis chapter 2 ends well. Adam and Eve, happy, naked, and gardening. It's a strange combination, but it's how Genesis 2 ends. And if you skip chapter 3... You walk back into the story and things look terribly different. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother. And he goes on the run. And he fears for his life. Genesis chapter 5 is the first obituary ever recorded in Scripture. Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lives 830 years, and he died. Enosh died. Kenan died. Mahalalel died. Jared, Enoch, Lamech, Methuselah died, 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 and died. How did we get here? How did we go from everything is good to everything is falling apart? We were only gone for a chapter. There's no garden. There's no tree of life. And at least on a surface reading of Genesis 4 and 5, there seems to be no sense of peace in the presence of God. If you're going to skip a chapter of the Bible, if you're going to get up and leave the story for popcorn or a bathroom break, whatever you do... Don't do it at chapter 3. Because if you miss this, nothing else will make sense. And I would even just suggest to you this morning that it's not just the rest of the Scripture story that will make no sense. Whatever happened to the very good creation of Genesis 1 and 2 is a question that people are still asking today. Look around you, watch the news, talk to your friends and your neighbors. Does it look anything like the picture of Genesis 1 and 2? Why do people die? Why is there war? Why is there cancer and arthritis and Alzheimer? Why is there abuse and abandonment and divorce? Why would a loving God allow all of this to happen? And if you skip chapter 3, 
None of that makes any sense. But I don't want to pretend that chapter 3 necessarily answers all the questions. But I do want to suggest that chapter 3 is a crucial part of the conversation. Even if we don't leave this story, we're filled with a pile of questions of our own. When, what unfolds in chapter 3 seems very simple, doesn't it? Almost overly simple. What we learn in chapter 2 is that there was actually a tree of life, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. In chapter 3, a serpent shows up out of nowhere and asks Eve, did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the, the garden? Now hold that for just a minute. That's not the way the story is told in Genesis chapter 2, is it? Look at the way Satan asked the question. If you go back to chapter 2, God says you can eat of any tree except don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any of them, but don't eat of that one. And Satan walks into the text and he says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? You see, Satan's most brilliant move is not in denying God, it's in distorting God. He just shifts it a little bit. Turns out, it's a big deal. Because of this seemingly simple act, the goodness of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 vanishes. And suddenly, within just a few verses... Instead of walking with God in the garden, Adam and Eve are now hiding from God. Instead of enjoying the beauty of creation, now they have to work with thorns and thistles. Instead of being on a perpetual honeymoon, Adam and Eve have their first fight. And in the first time of recorded history, man puts his foot in his mouth. The woman that you gave me she caused me to sin. Interesting. Because when we read the story of Genesis chapter 3, it all seems so simple. What's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit. Are you telling me that God has nothing better to do than just to, to mark off a tree in the middle of the garden somewhere and say, go ahead and eat anything, just, don't, just leave that one alone? Are you going to tell me that all of creation blew up and fell apart just because we had a hankering for what was dangling from that one tree? Does that make any sense at all? And besides the questions that naturally arise from the text, we have all these other questions. Questions that philosophers and theologians have fought over. Why did God even put a tree in the garden. Why give them a choice? What really is it to know the, the difference between good and evil? What does that mean to know? Didn't they already have a sense of right and wrong? I mean, they knew it would be wrong to do it. Did Adam have a belly button? All of these questions we ask of Genesis chapter 3. And none of these questions does the writer of Genesis try to answer. Now philosophically it's an interesting debate. Why would God put a tree in there? We answer that 
love is a choice and God didn't want to create us to be robots. He wanted us to decide to enjoy fellowship. But again, those are questions we pursue and we chase that's not at the heart of Genesis chapter 3. Let me tell you what I think is at the heart of Genesis chapter 3. I think what you find here is a competing image of God. You remember, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 has this image of God. God speaks and it happens. This powerful, in control, unrivaled image of God. Nothing happens without God speaking. And the remarkable thing is the amount of care that God has for the creation itself. He makes food that is good to eat, pleasant to look at. He didn't have to do that. He worries about Adam being alone in chapter 2. It's not good that man will be alone. He won't know how to dress himself. That's not in the text, but you can assume it. God doesn't want Adam to be lonely. And so he creates Eve. He didn't have to do that. God gets his hands dirty in Genesis chapter 2. He's working in the soil. He's, he's breathing life into Adam and Eve. He is intimately connected. He cares about them. He wants what's best for them. He creates a world that is for their blessing. And then Satan shows up in Genesis chapter 3. And he offers a competing image. Does God really have your best interest in heart? You realize that the reason God planted that tree there is because God doesn't want you to be like him. God somehow will feel threatened if you know what he knows. God is more concerned about his power and position than he is about your happiness. Don't touch the fruit. You see, God's real concern, Eve, is he doesn't want you to be happy. Now, that's a drastically different picture of God in Genesis chapter 3 than you have of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what's unfolding in this text of Genesis chapter 3 is a question, which image of God is reality? Do we serve a God who has our best interest in mind? Do we serve a God who has created all things with the power of his mind and has sought to bless you and me in everything he says and does? Does the law of God seek our blessing or is God somehow worried about us? Does God feel threatened by us? Is God concerned that he'll be less of a God if you somehow do something you choose to do? Which image is true? So that when Satan comes to Eve, in this picture of Genesis chapter 3, it's a competing image of God. And which one do you believe? <laughs> Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? No, he didn't. He said you can eat anything, just don't eat this one. And Eve's response is even fascinating because... Eve corrects him slightly, and she adds something to it. Now, it may be because Eve says, God said we can eat of any tree except the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and don't touch it. Now, it may be that God did say that, and it's just not recorded. 
It may be that Adam told Eve that. Eve, God said, don't eat of that tree, and I'm telling you, you don't even touch it. And Eve took that to mean God said that. Could be. But whatever it is, she understood that there was something God said to do and don't do. Knowledge of good and evil, it's a philosophical debate. Is it actually asking them, well, if you eat this, you'll know everything God knows? Does it mean that you'll know in the sense of experiencing something, that you'll now experience good and evil? Or is it some sort of declaration of independence against God? Genesis 3 is offering a competing image of God. And which one do you accept? But I also think behind Genesis chapter 3, there is a competing image of us, of man. Remember last week, Jim talked about what I believe to be a profound purpose for you and me. We are created to be the image bearers of God. The way we interact with each other, the way we interact with creation. When people see us, they should see an image of God present and at work. That's our purpose. But what happens if that's not what I want? What happens if we decide to do things the way we want to do them? If we don't like the plan God has for us, we don't like the image that God calls us to bear. What if I want to be my own person? What if I want to make my own decisions? What if I want to chart my own course and, and go my own way? What if I do not want to bear the image of God? And it seems that's the way we go. Satan's claim, you'll become like God. Not in the way God created us to be, but in a way that competes with God. Instead of trusting God to define right and wrong, we'll just take a shot at it ourselves. What could possibly go wrong? Now listen to the way John Mark Hicks describes it in his book, Yet Will I Trust in Him. He says, the tree is not about fruit. They're about fellowship. They're about life and death, a choice between life with God or life apart from God. The trees symbolize that choice, and the choice expresses what the heart truly desires. This isn't a thing about God having something against fruit. It's God saying, do you trust me? Do you trust that I have your best interest in mind? Do you trust that I have created a world and I want to protect you? Or do you not believe that? Because I've created a world in which you can have everything you want. You can eat of the tree and live. Just trust me. You don't want to know and do certain things. And we've read the rest of the story. What happens when we don't trust God? 
Genesis 3 also offers a profound view of sin. It's interesting to note that the word sin really first shows up in Genesis chapter 4. Sometimes a definition is, is not as good as an illustration. And so what we're shown in Genesis chapter 4 is what sin looks like and what sin brings about. And then we're given the word in Genesis chapter 4. And what you find in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin is filled with consequences. There'll be enmity or distance between the woman and the serpent. The early church begins to interpret that in light of Jesus, bruising the head of the serpent. The, the woman's desire will now be for her husband. There's now going to be pain in childbirth. Adam, you're going to have to get out there and you're going to have to work with the sweat of your brow because of thorns and thistles. Sin has consequences. If you don't trust God and you want to do this on your own, brace yourself. It's not going to turn out well. And so Genesis chapter 3 unpacks the consequences of sin. Consequences that you and I still live with today. There are lots of questions behind Genesis chapter 3. But I want to take you back to this image of God that I think is unfolding in the text. You notice God's first reaction when Adam and Eve have sinned is remarkable. God has created everything. He's planted the garden. He's given them everything they need. And they sin. They distrust God. And God's first reaction in Genesis chapter 3 is not to lob a thunderbolt down to Eden. The text says, verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called the man and said, Where are you? Do you realize how profound that is? God shows up in the garden after they've sinned, after they've turned their back on him, after they've walked away from him, after they've declared their independence from him, and God shows up and says, I still want to be with you. Where are you? It's not that God didn't know. As someone once said, this is like parents. When you walk into your child's room and it looks like a bomb has gone off and you've told them to clean it up, and your first question is, what have you done? You know the answer to the question. You're asking so that they think about the answer to that question. I've done nothing. Nothing that you told me to do. I've done it. And God shows up in the garden. God says, where are you? God knew he was hiding. He knew where they were hiding. But God's first reaction is not, get out of here. It's, where are you? The story that will unfold from Genesis 3 on through the rest of Scripture is God trying to reestablish 
that connection with his creation. And it's remarkable to find that God's first act after sin is an act of grace and an act of searching. You keep reading in Genesis chapter 3, and God even, verse 21, he gives them clothes. Now, that seems kind of weird. You see, when Adam and Eve chose not to trust God, they ate of this fruit, and the first thing the text says is their eyes are open and they were naked, and they get clothes on. You see, the first result of sin is realizing your own vulnerability. And in an act of extraordinary grace, God sees what they were wearing. He says, that, that's not going to be enough. And God further clothes them in chapter 3. He makes for Adam and Eve garments of skins and he clothed them. He didn't have to do that. They're leaving the garden and they're going into a fallen, broken environment. And God says, you're going to need more than what you've got. In the midst of their brokenness and fallenness, this image of God from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 remains the same. He's seeking the best for his creation. And then in a turn that seems very strange, but it's important. God does not want them to have access to the tree of life. It's how chapter 3 ends. The Lord said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Ha! See? God's sick of them. He doesn't want anything good for them. No, it's quite the opposite. I often read that text in funerals as a reminder that even death sometimes is a grace of God. There are some things worse than death. And God, seeing the hell that had now unfolded before him, because of our desire to declare our independence, we want to do it our way. We want to make our own decisions. Thank you, but we've got this on our own, God. God says, I do not want them to live here forever. Death is still upholding that image of God as gracious and powerful and seeking what's best for his creation. I tell people that listening to Jim preach, I always listen for two things. One is every now and then Jim Baird will preach and he'll say something that you spend half the sermon saying, What? And usually in his sermon, he'll say something second that you say, wow. And this morning, Jim, your communion 
was a wow. This image of God still caring for creation, still worried about Adam and Eve. Here's another day and another meal. Even though you don't trust me, even though you don't believe I have your best interest in heart, take another breath. If we are to be images of God, what does that say about us? You see, there is a competing image of Genesis 1 and 2 of that God and the God that Satan throws out in front of you. Which one do you think is true? And for the rest of Scripture, I would argue that that image of chapter 1 and 2 of a gracious and powerful God seeking fellowship with his creation is the one that you find on page after page after page of the story that's going to unfold. And I hate to get too far ahead in that story, but I feel like we have to. It'll come in 40 books after a number of twists and turns, but when Jesus arrives in the story, you'll see that he has come to reverse the curse that's discovered in chapter 3 of Genesis. Every bit of brokenness, every bit of pain becomes the mission of Jesus Christ to undo in the name of the kingdom of God. And so there's one other part of this that I think needs our attention. If you and I are to be the image bearers of God, how do we respond to people who sin? Is our first reaction to hurl our version of a thunderbolt being an insult, a stare down the nose, or a wiping of our hands from any problem? Or do we even in our own life, seeking to bear the image of God, do everything we can to show grace? The reason you and I are here today is because God did not give up on Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 3. Praise be to God for that. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, we offer the invitation of the same God who shows the same grace in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. If you've never come to Jesus Christ for, for forgiveness we invite you to do that this morning through believing in him as the son of God, putting him on in baptism and receiving that grace of God for all of us. We invite you to do that this morning while we stand and sing.